0: doesn't everybody just want to be the best version of themselves? Like if if you want to be better than you are, like your options are stay the same, get worse over time or get better over time. And the only way to get better over time is to recognize ways in which you can improve, which is just feedback and listening to people and like not being perfect.
1: Welcome to the Dark Zone and Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatons. In Adventure Racing Lingo, a dark zone is a time when, due to darkness or safety, teams are poised on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone, and we are glad that you are here. Today's guest is Dan Stoudigill of Team Ben Racing. Many of you may know Dan from his racing during Eco Challenge Fiji, But as we learned during the show, Dan is far more than a racer with overheating issues. A conscientious storyteller, he brings a depth of thought and experience to today's show. Thank you to Dan for joining us for this episode. Before we jump in here, here are a few quick notes. During the episode, we never discussed Dan's website, w.orienteer.co, an online training tool for orienteers and all those interested in navigation. Please make it a point to pay to visit. It's well worth your time. We're also happy to announce that Tansy Navigation has come on as a sponsor of The Dark Zone. You can learn all about them at www.tansynavigation.com. Listeners of The Dark Zone can enter to win a free copy of Mark Latanzi's book, Squiggly Lines, by emailing me at brian at ardarkzone.com. It is an indispensable guide for anybody interested in paper and map navigation. Thank you to Tanzi for coming on board as a sponsor. When the episode starts, you'll notice that Dan and I are deep in conversation. This is not by accident. We jump right into it. Your podcast player is not broken. And eventually we do an introduction. But to begin, you open up right in mid-conversation about sleep and exhaustion. Dan is the best. On one last item. As a suggestion to several listeners, I've added an ending to this and future podcasts. Many people felt like they were left hanging as the interview would just end. Stick around after the music for a few closing words. And again, thank you for joining The Dark Zone. Today's world doesn't lack for ways to grab your time and attention. We're grateful to have you as a listener
0: race a long time ago where Jason, me and Jason's twin, Andy, were racing with Chelsea and she, Chelsea, uh, had a basically heinous medical where she started passing a gallstone in the beginning of the race. And so she dropped out and we kept going and we decided to take the opportunity to sleep, like to make, take the experiment of, Oh, we're going to sleep Two to three hours every night, and so we did. And we would catch the teams that we were hanging out with before sleep, at most eight hours later. Yeah. So the so the sleep
1: actually, it, it's it's like not like in a marathon where someone will run for quite a while, walk a little bit, and run, and they keep totally. passing you, and you're and it's a, it's the steadiness of that. Do you um, yeah. when you when you race in the morning and you're on the course, the teams you work with usually go with like do you follow the that traditional philosophy of racing the entire full day through the full night and sleeping like 30 hours in, or do you you usually go first night sleep?
0: Um, We generally go right through the first night. Um, but it really depends on the race. You know, there, there are races where, you know, you really want to catch a dark zone and so you don't sleep the second night. You're trying to push, 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 push through. But yeah, in general, we, we follow the, the two hours a night starting on the second night, two
1: to three hours starting on the second night. Yeah, we uh, we were down in Ecuador not too long ago, and we slept a little bit that first night just because it was we 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 had the experience of the totally. night the night before the race. We stayed at this beautiful hacienda in in Vitata, in, in mm-hmm. Ecuador. Beautiful place. Right next door to the hacienda was a uh, community center that was having a uh, funeral service, and the funeral service consisted of about 150 residents, music. Yeah. And music and more music and more residents. And so we didn't totally. sleep the night for the race. And so the mistake that totally. we made was that our first night was really our second night. And we mm-hmm. would have been better served by having a longer sleep. And we came across the magical, like, road. There was, like, a building that was accessible, clean, open, and dry. As and so we, yeah, right. we slept totally. for, like, 30 minutes, we should have slept for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, at least. When you find that warm, that warm building,
0: it's... It's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely crazy. I, I guess like at some point, I should probably tell our listeners who are listening in on our conversation now. But I'm talking to, to Dan from uh, Dan Stoddegall from Team Bend Racing. Uh, Dan has his fair share of experiences uh, racing in America, out of America, at Worlds, in Fiji, and other races. I'm sure that he's going to fill in along the way. Uh, Dan's appeal to coming on the Dark Zone today is not as much predicated upon his his intense Knowledge of the sport, but the wisdom he's dropped along Facebook along the way. Welcome yeah. to the dark zone. It's a pleasure to have you today. Um, so, how did your world's race? To be go? here,
0: our world's race, um, all things considered, went really well. Um, you talked to to Darren. So you heard the the story about us losing a teammate right before and then subbing in Darren. And then we went out there and and our my biggest goal. Is to to learn to learn learn a lesson and then try to put it into into practice in a race. Um, and going into Fiji, we sat down, we talked and talked and talked about what our most likely failure mode was going to be, and we basically laid out exactly how to avoid it and how we should be careful. And basically, that mistake that we figured ahead of time would be the most catastrophic is if we go out too fast at the start and then I get heat exhausted and it like we just start the race off with me in a deep hole and if you've seen the Fiji story that's exactly what we did and then the question is well why didn't we have the discipline to stick to our plan and the answer is because it felt good to paddle really fast and to be at the front of the pack. And it was just too tempting to stay there. And despite, you know, like calls during that thing to like, slow down and eat and drink more. It basically was like, no, we're doing really well. Like keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, and, and so for me, The two lessons that I took away from that were basically like, we have to have discipline. Like we can't in the heat of the moment, make a plan change, You know, and and there are some races where the plan should be go out of the gate as fast as you can and put a gap on the team on the field and then maintain that for the rest of the race. But that was not the strategy going into Fiji. Shouldn't have been the strategy going into Fiji. And so for us to like change strategies at the last minute was catastrophic. Um, and so the other lesson from Fiji was that I went into that race just too heavy. You know, I, I was carrying around too much, especially for a hot race in the tropics. And so going into worlds, we put all of that as much as we could into practice of just like, this is our strategy. We're going to try to stick to it. And we need to be very cautious about changing strategies. Uh, I went into it probably 25 pounds lighter than I went into Fiji. And I felt great. Um, Chelsea and I had been hitting the training really hard. And overall, you know, we we did a really good job of of the main goal of just staying disciplined. Um, there's a really funny story from later in the race where we were we were kind of talking about discipline as a team and and Lars and I were basically super into talking about how important it was to be disciplined. And we just I literally rode right by a checkpoint. <laughs> So, so it's like the, the biggest loss of discipline was, was, you know, getting me started talking about discipline, which the, the irony laugh, race laughed about that for
1: the whole race after that. Right. It's um, the, and, and it's the, and the conversation does you in, right? You're, you're on a road and it's traveling fine and you're good. And the, the maps look great and everything is sun shining and you go right by an intersection or a turn. And then totally. you fall into that wonderful totally. navigational joy of convincing yourself that you're somewhere where you're clearly not that you, yeah. you, you create your own story in your head that says to itself, well, clearly we must be here because this is, yeah. and this is there. And meanwhile, you're, you're far off that. Um, let me walk yeah. you back just a little bit because for those who are new totally. to the dark zone, um, we've now talked about two huge races and how they're interwoven together. So let's go chronologically mm-hmm. a little bit. Let's, well, let's back up even more. Um, talk to us a bit about your race experience, where you've raced, your big races, your small races, how long you have been at this. Paint a picture for the listener.
0: Well, so Jason was a teacher at my high school, so I'm 35, um, so I I was racing with him in high school, basically, so we, we did a 24-hour race, uh, the Gold Rush 24-hour in 2004 or something like that, and... It was uh, an amazing experience. We went there with four high school students and two teachers, so two teams of three that kind of stuck together. And uh, even even during the training, I knew that I was totally hooked. Um, funnily enough, at the time, the only sport that I just couldn't stand was paddling. But there was enough mountain biking and running that, that I just had a, had such a blast. And I hurt so bad after I got home. I couldn't walk up and down stairs, you know, like I had to turn around and, and butt scoot up and down stairs. My legs were so, so sore and tired, um, that I was totally hooked. Um, went to college, did a couple expedition races with Jay and with another team. Um, and then basically once I left college, Jason and I, continued racing a little bit here, a little bit there. He met Chelsea. We started racing together as a trio a lot. We had a really hard time finding a fourth team member. Um, so we basically started training people up and and we paired with a bunch of really amazing people for various races. We raced Patagonia with uh, the gear junkie, Stephen Reginald. Um, we raced it with we raced a bunch of races with Paul Cassidy. Um, and it took us a long time to settle in. We raced a lot with Eric Sanders, who went on to uh, race with AK. So, yeah, we had a really like we raced a lot. We raced in Patagonia, Chile. We raced in Abu Dhabi. We raced in um, all over the US in uh, Costa Rica. We raced in Ecuador. And then, you know, the last couple of years have been focusing on kids mostly because Jason and Chelsea and I live within hundred meters of each other. And so we've been raising our four boys between the two families, um, which has been a lot of work and has taken a pretty big dent in the racing schedule. Uh, But we're kind of getting back into it. Jason has two fresh hips. um, And so we're kind of, we've really spent the last couple of years trying to position ourselves for really, you know, kicking butt in the, in the upcoming races. And we're kind of, we've learned a lot in the last while. So hoping to, to start putting that all into practice.
1: So, so you landed in the larger public consciousness because you were featured so prominently in Equal Challenge Fiji, uh, the beginning <laughs> yeah. of the race, the challenges yeah. you had, the lack of clothing yeah. you had to wear as a result of those challenges. And we were <laughs> yeah. watching that show at home and my, a child of mine, my daughter wow. is into reality TV, and she's actually in mm. college studying and, and how to pursue that as a career. And she predicted mm-hmm. pretty early on that we were going to see a lot of you later in the race because they never mm-hmm. show somebody in distress in the beginning who does not have some sort of redemption story towards the end. And clearly that was your experience in Fiji. You mentioned yeah. you went, you went out too fast. Uh, it is addictive to be at the pointy end of the race. It's And totally. Fiji was probably that feeling on steroids because it was such a big production, right? You were selected to be there. TV, totally. TV crews, camera totally. crews, Bear grills, totally. big start. And, and totally. the adrenaline got in the way of your strategy and you went blasting out of the gate. Um, totally. And things fell apart pretty quickly. <laughs>
0: things, like quickly by expedition race standards like a day later not so right well eight at eight hours really later or 12 you know 10 hours later so we started in the morning paddled all day in brutal heat no wind super humid uh and then yeah and then as soon as i got out of the boat Like I barely could walk. the The last like half hour, I knew something was up, so I tried to like dial it back and hydrate. Unfortunately for me, I was missing with salt. Um, I had just like taken a couple of cups of of seawater and drank it along the way. I would have been what much better off. Um, but yeah, I was just hyponatremic to a borderline fatal degree. Right. And when, and once you um, go down that path, once
1: you're in that hole and there's there's being in the hole and there's being in the hole with potentially lethal consequences, you were towards the latter part of that. You um, had some significant challenges there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's nice to point out, and I always talk about this with the ear towards the newer racer, that fitness and strength are strong, but there are some things that fitness and strength will not help you with. And if it's if your nutrition falls apart, if your, your salt intake yeah. falls apart, no matter how tough you are, Nope. Mother Nature bats last and its lights out for you. How long did it take to
0: recover from that? Um two days or so. It was like a slow crawl out of the hole. Um and then pretty much the pattern was I would I would this the the Fiji race had these camps along the way. So I would kind of we would race for each camp, obviously, and I would just leave each camp feeling pretty good because i would have i just had eaten five four ramen packets or something like that you know so plenty of like carved up salted up feeling pretty good and then by the time i got to the end of it um you know because i wasn't supplementing salt aggressively during the race and i'm sweating like i'm just digging myself back into that hole and then get to the camp get a lot of salt take a nap get started again um, so it was, it was, you know, like a slow climb out of the hole until, you know, basically the end, you know, like the, the final paddle was the first time that I felt actually like really good again, And, and what which was, was that great in the race. <sighs> Seven, Day seven days or something like that, yeah. six or seven days, something like that. Yeah. This is the point
1: um, in the podcast in which listeners tend to stop and stare at their radio or their pod. Cause it's, we're talking seven or eight days no. later that it's, yeah, it's,
0: it's it's hard to talk about these races sometimes because you're just like, and then we kept walking. And then what happened? We just kept walking. You know, you're just like, <laughs> we walked for 72 hours. Right, right. What? Exactly. Um, So no, I, I, it's, it's a difficult sport to kind of describe because most of the interesting stories for me are all, you know, team dynamics, emotions, gear failures, and when they happen. Uh, So that's, but it's, it's tough. It's a really bizarre sport that really demands everything you have. And
1: that's a common conversation topic around here is the fact that you draw upon multiple. We used, There's racing disciplines, right? There's, there's cycling, there's trekking, but it pulls upon multiple disciplines beyond that. Mental strength, communication skills, mm-hmm. nutrition choices. You said earlier that you, you were hooked right away. Uh, that was the phrase that you used. You were totally hooked, totally. actually, is what you said. Yeah, And this was in high school. And that's a pretty early point to come into the sport.
0: Well, it was at the time. Now we put on a race last weekend where 10-year-olds were stoked out of their minds to be racing. You know, finishing really strong, like fast, consistent, smart, like doing things. Um, so I think now there's, there's much, much younger people getting really into it. So I think it takes you, when- pretty committed parents, but... Yeah, obviously parents, I mean, it's
1: hard enough to be a parent as it is, you know, it's one, it's one thing to take your child down to the soccer pitch and let, I can't wait to take
0: uh, Gio onto the race. Exactly. And so great.
1: Were you, were you a high school athlete?
0: No, no. Um, I love mountain biking. I love surfing. I love climbing. Um, but I'm, I am, I am not, I'm super not competitive. Like if it's, if it's, like I have no, almost no desire to join a race on my own. And the thing about adventure racing that turns it around is, is the question of what can we do as a team? Like how fast can we go? How good can we be? And that's a very interesting question to me. Um, you know, Chelsea is super fired up to, to ride around in circles just to see how fast she can go. And, uh, you know, that, that, that question just isn't that interesting to me. The, the team aspect is really what makes it so, so good for me personally. Like I couldn't race solo. I tried a few times to race solo and it's just not, it's not a thing for me. Um, but the team thing really hooked me of just like giving, giving and taking support, being able to push way past your personal boundaries, watching other people push way past theirs, coming together uh it's you know it's very often therapeutic to be in a tribe and and racing hard a lot of the early races um we would come home and kind of all go our separate ways and i would just be depressed because i just missed the missed the team and that, that totally went away now that we live next to each other. Cause you can just, I can just like walk over and have coffee and chat about the race. And, and so the, the tribe never, never goes away, which, you know, makes it much easier to come home now.
1: Clearly you pull a, a social communal benefit from the experience that oh this is God. that when totally. you throw yourself into something and you have your, you have your mates on either side of you and off you go and you're, and you're going at it, having done a wide oh. swath of races and racing for such a long time, you've been a witness to a lot of different things for the, for the sure. newer racer out there. Where, where have you seen it? When, when, it, when have things gone off the rails for either a team you're on or another team? Because if you think about it in, in uh, an injury to a teammate or a medical situation like yours in Fiji, many listeners would think that that would doom the team dynamic and in some mm-hmm. teams it doesn't in some teams it doesn't. Oh, yeah? So having seen that in, in play in your own racing and observing it in other teams, What do you think is the driving force behind teams that come apart at the seams versus teams that bond closer together? The
0: biggest thing is when a teammate gives up. When when a teammate gives up, you're basically done. We've dropped out of two races. I think that's it as a as team bend racing or you know, yoga slackers before that. And once was because somebody had bad enough blisters that they just they didn't want to keep walking and there's no amount of convincing them that it's okay. And then the other race was, was um, Patagonia when Jason's hip was so bad that, that, you know, he was inchworming across the ground. And we went from first place by 24 hours to like 72 hours behind the the leaders or 48 hours behind the leaders. Right. And And that's not
1: even really giving up. That's the idea that medically speaking, the person is running into it, even with their feet or with the hip. I mean, we could like
0: in principle, we could have continued dragging him across the ground. Like we gave up, right. We decided that, that we didn't want to keep going. We could in principle have continued, you know, whether it's like literally carrying him or whatever. But at that point, it's just like, no, 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 that we, we gave it our best shot. We put together a commanding lead and then, things fell apart to the degree that it's not worth whatever damage we're doing to Jason. It's not worth that to like painfully drag him up and over a mountain pass to a 10th place finish. Just like what, like what, what's the benefit there? There's
1: there's no long-term benefit to him and the team to actually go through all of that. Let's, let's talk about Patagonia for a second there, because Patagonia is a race that lives very often in legend, um, a mythic race.
0: Talk to us a bit about your Patagonia experience. Patagonia is, is a mythic place. It's one of those places where you can hear a story from the winners that involves like 16 hours spent back bracing a storm in some hut somewhere. Um, the Patagonians that I, that I have been there for um, have all been, they're, they're very trekking focused races. And so it's basically a prologue Of a normal expedition race, followed by an unbelievable roadless, trailless trek. You know, treks of, I think the biggest one was built at 100K with literally actually zero trails. So you're just kind of bush bashing through the Patagonian wilderness, following Hamul tracks and, you know, animal trails, um, trying to stick
1: to the bogs. The wind, the wind howling, seeing every weather pattern over the course of the trek.
0: Totally. You know, in some years it's bright and sunny and you're just like in your T-shirts and other times it's dreary and rainy and other times it's windy and like windy to the point of having to hold Chelsea down. There's a pretty <laughs> amazing video that we have got um, where where I'm I'm walking with Chelsea down a ridge and I'm I'm holding her hand. And the part that the vid- you can't see in the video is that I'm like physically pressing her into the ground so that she stays attached basically. And so it just kind of looks like, you know, dad is walking his daughter to school <laughs> and, and I'm just like physically pressing her into the ground so she doesn't get blown off the cliff. Um, and, and yeah, so the, the weather plays a huge role. Um, it's an amazing race because you basically can't make headway at night. So you go until midnight and then you sleep until five am and then you wake up and you keep going. And so you wind up sleeping just a lot out there, which in in adventure racing is basically unheard of having five hours a night of sleep. Uh, and so you just push for push for eighteen hours and then sleep for, five or six, and then rinse and repeat until you finish the, finish the thing. And you feel amazing because so much sleep, you get so much chance to recover by the end of those races. I wind up feeling just superhuman. You put down the, the 30 pound pack and you just can, you know, feels like you can jump and touch the moon or whatever. Um, which so it's is a, it's which, a which amazing, amazing right? Because
1: this is a sport that, 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 uh, this is a sport that on its face would appear to eat people alive. And you're saying that instead, instead it
0: energizes you. It brings it brings you to more life. Yeah, I think the the funny thing. I think this is kind of the anti fragile piece for me. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but um, humans, humans and plants and you know living things, fundamentally, if the stressor is just the right size, you just get stronger and stronger and stronger, um, and that's really that's really the thing for me about adventure racing that that is so incredible that you rise to the occasion. Um, and I, I think some you know, some races just by their nature on are on one side of the thing where they kind of slowly build you up over time. And that's really Patagonia. And most other races do kind of wear you down over time. Cause you just aren't sleeping that much. Uh, so you wind up just pretty, pretty empty. Um but once you recover, i my personal experience is once you recover, you're that much more ready for life work, you know partnership, really a proving ground for relationship management stuff but so um so Frank you know, so, so Kelly really on.
1: So, so, so Grant Killian, who puts on Untamed New England, said that these were contrived inconveniences, that we intentionally put ourselves mm-hmm. in these situations, and therefore we lost the right to complain about it. So kind of put that to the side for a second. Like you, you, you paid your admission fee, you got the year, you flew to wherever it was, and you got into it. But he talked about how there was a, a sense of the reason why we did something like this is that we felt the need to, to test ourselves. We felt the need to push the outer boundaries of what's possible uh, of our
0: capacity. Where do you fall on that? I think there's definitely some truth there. I think, I think that's a huge part of it for me. Also, I just like biking and hiking and paddling. You know, I don't think anybody's doing adventure racing just because they want to do something hard. There are much more straightforward things that you can do if you want to see how far you can go. Uh, You know, the, the backyard ultra is kind of the perfect example of that, you know, just see how many times you can walk around your block. Is it a thousand is it 10,000, you know, you're going to find out what the number is and you will have pushed yourself obscenely far. And so for me, the adventure racing magic is the combination of how hard, how amazing, how remote, how beautiful, uh, how fun the terrain is. Like, you know, is the mountain biking fun, like, is the, is the paddling somewhere beautiful is the trekking somewhere, somewhere to write home about and that for me is the, is the thing that makes this a sport that I am even more excited to be participating 15 years in than I was when I first started.
1: Is, is, that, is that due to your personal growth or is it due to the growth in the sport
0: itself? I think it's both. Um, I, I think maybe mostly me. The sport hasn't changed that much. There's been you know, some shifts in rules or in in basic format or whatever and and i think most of it is just my perspective shift over the years from like oh a fun thing to do on the weekend to like oh i need to i need to really i need to go deep you know i need to go deep with myself i need to get that empty head i need to to hold space for a team going through something really incredibly hard. Um, you know, I want to, uh, you know, it's, it's time, you know, there's this antsy kind of anxiety for me that kind of creeps up slowly if it's been too long and then I need to do something, whether that's like run around in the woods for 24 hours or do an adventure race or, you know, probably a seven day silent retreat would scratch the same itch or whatever. Um, you, you actually kidding. literally just read
1: my mind, I thought the same thing, that there's a there's a certain personal benefit towards turning off the noise from the outside world and putting yourself into a cocoon, if you will, which may not be the best word to use there, yeah. but, but a, 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 a place in which you're away from the noise and distractions, totally. right? I, I always talk totally. about that. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the race is when they take our phones away and they go into the sealed <laughs> bag and they basically say, opening case of emergency. Totally. You're going totally. into a, a multi-day experience or even a 24 hour experience in which totally. nobody has access to you. Totally.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the in this most recent race in, in worlds there, we, we just had such a fun time with Lars. I've never raced with him before. And he's, he's hysterically funny. Uh, but we had a moment where we're kind of riding around, riding up some long Hill and, and he turns to me and he says something, something along the lines of like, I'm not thinking about anything. My head is empty. It's like, yeah, you thought you thought all the thoughts, you did all the things, all the tasks are done. And the only thing is just like go up the hill. And your head is empty. And you know, people, people work really hard to get to this place. And we kind of just like stumbled into it. And so we just had like empty, empty headed racing for the next 24 hours where we're just like plugging away, doing the things and there's just no distractions. It's just like presence. And it's, it's, it's crazy to think back and just how, how long we were able to stay in that. Just, just doing, just acting, not, not thinking about it. I also predict that we'll
1: look at a race list in about three, four weeks or six months is empty headed. Racing is going to be somebody's team name and they're going to hear this and they're going to say, you know something, I got a great name for a team, empty headed racing." Yep. That's right.
0: Yeah. Do you, do when, you think do you,
1: do you think that the how much has your personality shifted over time due to the racing, or did you bring your personality to the racing? I think
0: it, my because it sounds like a natural fit. It's a it's a natural fit in some ways. Um there are I think if I'm honest about my personality, um it is that I am extremely physically giving and emotionally giving and catastrophically arrogant. Like that's, that's like how I exited my teens or whatever. And so in racing, that's a big challenge, right? Like racing with somebody who, whose kind of natural communication style is as arrogant as mine was. I, you know, hat is off for for Jason, like living with that for very long. I think his natural communication style is similar. So I think he, it was a take one to no one kind of deal. Um, But racing racing softened that, like started, started that process and a lot of credit to to Jason for kind of like steadily chipping away at this. Um, but that was, that was the big transformation for me that took me from like, uh, a useful, but annoying member of a team to like, like a genuinely valuable member of the team, um, kind of picturing some of the emotional work that that had to be done in world championships, an immature me would would not have been able to to do that. You know, I would not have been able to hold space for Chelsea's meltdowns or um like struggles. Um and so the the years and years of racing and watching people fail and trying to talk them through it and like understanding how how words matter and how communication matters and like who responds to what and how, um, all of that soft skills, you know, in air quotes for, for lack of a better term are the most important skills in general. Right. And, and I think that's as much true in racing as it is in marriage or in a job or anywhere. You well, know, and I, the I limit think that what one person can do is very low and the limit of what a bunch of people together can do is very high. And the glue that holds all that together is is emotional work and understanding and compassion and and pushing people in a way that they are receptive to.
1: And that dynamic magnifies itself in an adventure race, because not only do you have to pull upon those soft skills and, you know, we call them soft skills as a society. I, I I think you are in agreement. These are essential skills that are sorely lacking, right? If there's any, totally. Mm-hmm. R- rarely, rarely do I go far afield in this podcast and talk about the state of the larger world. But I think a mm-hmm. bigger challenge we're seeing today in general society is that we're talking at each other. We're not
0: talking with each other. Yeah, and and focus on talking and not listening. You know, I think that's that's kind of the biggest missing piece is is people people speak without listening, and by that I mean trying to trying to understand the best possible version of what somebody is saying to you, you know, it's kind of, um, in, in communication, uh, the more, the more you can own the better, like the more of your own, like words you can own, the more of like somebody else's intent, you can kind of take responsibility for and say, okay, like they probably meant this let's check in are you talking about X or is, is Y an example of what you're talking about or kind of that, that thing. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just not rewarded very much. And, and the language, the language gets personal, you know, it, it, when people kind of, when people talk, they very quickly reveal their insecurities, reveal their deep deep emotional wounds they they reveal their confidences they reveal a lot about themselves that it's awkward to just go digging around you know like people people will try to use self-deprecating humor in a way where they kind of talk about their deepest insecurities and and it's very hard to be all you can be in partnership or in a team or in a group without kind of going there and without unpacking some of that stuff. And this is not like, we don't live in a culture where that is smiled upon, right? Like if somebody, if you're, you know, I, if you're talking with a coworker and, and they reveal, (laughs) reveal accidentally, like their, their darkest thing that they should have been seeing a therapist about for the last 20 years in casual conversation. And you're just like, Whoa, we can't, like, we cannot move on until, until we kind of talk about this because this is going to keep coming up and it's going to keep self-sabotaging and it's going to keep getting in the way of the work and it's going to keep doing all these things. But it's like, that's not, that's not a, that's not a welcome conversation for them. You know, like most people don't want to have, therapy session with somebody that that they just met or that they're working with they want to keep all that stuff hidden and and that just puts such a unfortunate ceiling on what we can get done you know when you're when you're talking to somebody about politics or whatever you know it's very quickly that that it's just clear that there's something deeper going on and it's just like what is that thing like what's going on for you how and i'm and i have become so intensely curious about all of these things that that, is, that it can be really hard to, to operate with people who aren't like ready for that or who don't want that. I think um, the larger, larger thing you're talking about there, and I think you're spot
1: on, is the idea that very often one behavior is proxy for another. where, oh, yeah, where anger is really fear. Totally. You know, anger is you know, really frustration feeling inside and things like that. And I, I think you're spot on. And I, I think one thing we take away from our respective event tracing experiences is because racing is so intense and because it, it kind of strips away the layers of the onion, you get totally. a crash course in that vulnerability during a race. Totally. You know, you, you totally. used the word therapy session a second ago. Very often we will say rather tongue in cheek, but being serious that after races, we kind of have therapy sessions with each other. The fact that we oh. have to process <laughs> out the experience that we just went through.
0: Mm. Why don't you do it during the race?
1: I think, it, I, I think it does happen during the race. For people yeah. who, are, who are intimately comfortable and familiar with each other, I think it happens during mm-hmm. the race, right? Yeah. You, you have the gift of racing alongside Jason and Chelsea and a whole cadre yeah. of, of, of people you're close with who know you and who respect you and who right. listen to you and allow you to be vulnerable. I think yeah. the deeper connections you have to your teammates, the easier to do that inside of a race. If you're newer racing together or mm-hmm. if you're bringing some preconceived mm-hmm. issues to the table, mm-hmm. it gets really hard to do that. And I'll give you yeah. an example where it comes out. Sure. For a man to go on
0: tow during a race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It We're- takes a very big man to, to accept that help. Um, you know, a little bit self-serving. I say that because that's something that I've grown into over the years. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to admit, to admit weakness or opportunities for growth. And I think, the interesting thing for me there is how surprising that is to me in hindsight. Like I've, I've lived that, you know, I've been, you know, I've, I've been the guy that wants to be the, the strong man that, that has no weaknesses and, and played that out for a long time because I I was, you know, naturally quite strong and, you know, kind of intuited a completely reasonable training program for expedition racing. And, and it took me, eight years to like find my breaking point. And then there were a couple races where I just like had really severe physical problems that we kind of struggled through. Um, and then I learned a lot about tendonitis and how to manage my body, like from a mechanical perspective, you know, and had some really amazing race races after those learnings and then kind of started learning other stuff. Um, as other things started failing. But I think the the thing that is so surprising in hindsight is like, doesn't everybody just want to be the best version of themselves? Like if, if you want to be better than you are, like your options are stay the same, get worse over time or get better over time. And the only way To get better over time is to recognize ways in which you can improve which is just feedback and listening to people and like not being perfect and so to me it is just so surprising how tenaciously people cling to there's nothing to improve and you're just like how can you believe that how 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 can that be so thoroughly ingrained in you that you refuse feedback or you refuse help or you refuse ideas or you don't think about like ways in which you could possibly get better. And that, that to me is really the, the piece that is so surprising looking back. It's like, how, how did it take me so long to get there? Why is this so hard, right? It's so simple. Either you want to get worse over time. You don't want to, change it all over time or you want to get better over time. And who doesn't want to get better over time? Who doesn't want to be a better version of themselves at 30 than they were at 20. But a lot of people, you know, experience a lot of growth in their teens and then they, you know, start getting stuck in their ways. And then it's just like a slow slide. And and they just look back and say, Oh man, high school was really good. Wasn't it? We also live in a culture
1: that celebrates exposing yourself like that being vulnerable. Mm. So That's probably a big part of it also, because I have a friend of mine who's a corporate trainer and part of his responsibility is to work with CEOs of larger corporations. And he says the hardest conversation he has is the idea when he says he's a mirror, that he forces mm-hmm. the, the, the men or women he works with to look at themselves with completely open and abject eyes about their performance and their behavior and their choices. And, you know, you really don't get very far in the world today if you walk around kind of exposing out loud to everybody what, what, what you're not good at. Right, because in many environments, to expose that kind of weakness, and look at the word I just used there—I used the word weakness, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that was and that's Mm -hmm. that's a Freudian slip based upon society's expectations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You aren't really rewarded for being vulnerable; you're rewarded for being
0: strong. I I guess, and it gets into the like confidence. Confidence is a proxy for competence. Um, There's there's a lot there, and and it just is so illogical to me. You know, like the the idea that that we can have corporate behemoths that are, you know, all about posturing just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, how is some company that is just faster, nimbler, more open, more focused on growth not going to just eat their lunch? I just don't. It just seems like that is such a clear way to outcompete. But you know, like people ignore ignore reality all the time so I, I i can definitely see it and i see it happen um well, well think about this when you go to the big races and this is a, a phrase I,
1: I rarely hear attributed to to strong teams they're not really cocky they're confident mm-hmm. so, they don't have that false bravado but they have it they, they carry themselves in such a way that mm-hmm. you know that they're going to be enough for the course but mm-hmm. by no means is their swagger by no means uh, when i was in scotland racing the team that won the race were the most mild mannered, pleasurable machines totally. that just blew totally. the course. They blew people out of the water. And you would totally. never know it by by putting your eyes on them.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think I think that's almost a prerequisite for lasting a long time in, in adventure racing. It's just like being easy to work with. It's like if you're if you're hard to race with, you won't get a lot of races under your belt.
1: You, you'll either spit yourself out the back of the engine, or people will vote against you. Totally. By not bringing totally. along along, and so you, you have
0: to work on being a good teammate. Totally, you got to get called back if you if you want to keep racing. Exactly. So we have deep pockets. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> pay, 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 pay for pay come along, and then they'll put up with buy it. myself, three teammates. Um, <laughs> In, in his podcast with me, Darren Steinbod talked about the pep mm-hmm. talk you gave him when he was in a really, mm-hmm. really, really dark spot and he was, mm-hmm. and he talked about it. So, so he's, he's comfortable, obviously with the topic mm-hmm. and with what you shared with him, not to put you totally. on the, the spot make you remember what you said to him at that moment. But do you recall that during the race?
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, there's, there's a really, there's a really interesting, like the context around this is shin splints is, is a, um, tendinitis basically. And tendinitis has obviously rears its head for endurance racers all the time. And the interesting thing about it is that there's kind of two pieces. One is just biomechanically. Like if you're doing the wrong thing, your body complains by kicking on tendinitis. And then there's the mental thing of it. It takes just absolutely serious tendonitis to actually get in the way functionally so there's a really large area where you can kind of push through the pain and deal with it after the race Um, and so one of i think this is pretty must be universal i've seen it in so many racers that i've raced with Um, there's there's kind of that first race where you have really bad tendonitis And you figure it out. Like there's this switch almost where you just kind of switch from feeling like you're doing irreparable harm to your body and like, you should definitely stop. And this is all terrible. And you switch into like, I am out here voluntarily. This is one of the obstacles. This hurts. And this is my body telling me something. How do I listen to my body? how do I participate in this thing? And so there were a couple of ways that I phrased it for him. So I kind of attacked it from a couple of different angles, which I think are all kind of important pieces. Um, One is a variation on, on tell yourself a new story. You know, there's, there's often many ways of making meaning out of your situation and, and, In adventure racing, there's often like the helpless story and then there's the I'm racing story. And so when you fall into this helpless trap, you have to figure out a way to tell yourself the the I'm racing story. So you have to switch from woe is me. Everything is horrible. I'm in pain to I'm amazing. I'm going to push through this. Like, this is part of the, this is part of the deal. This happens sometimes. And we just have to find the way through it. And when you describe it that way, it sounds much easier than it is. It is very difficult to flip the script on yourself. It's very difficult to tell yourself that new story and switch it back into racing but it's something you can get better at. So one of the things that I was focusing on is just like, I don't know how to tell you how to switch this story, but you have to switch this story. Like you have to switch from what was me to I'm a superhero and I'm overcoming adversity. And it's it's not something that that you can just learn how to do. It's like you have to find, you have to become good at finding that switch. You know, it's like you're fumbling around in a dark room and the switch is never in the same place. You know, you have to figure out how to find that new story and you get better at that. You know, you get better at finding your way to the next story in that moment. So that was, that was kind of one of the things is like, just switch. You need to switch your story. I can't tell you how to do that, but you have to do it. Um, The other one is kind of physical where you where tendonitis comes from overusing a thing. And so he was experiencing, um, foot flexor, uh, like tendonitis. And so we attached a bungee cord from the tip of his foot to his backpack or to his Jersey. So that's kind of like doing the work of that foot flexor for him. And so he needs to, consciously relax that muscle and use it less and he has the help that he needs in order to make that happen and so he has to relearn how to walk in the moment which is another very difficult thing and so he has to relearn how to walk by not lifting his foot relaxing those muscles relaxing that connection um and that's you know that's a that's really difficult changing your biomechanics in a race is really hard. It's hard. Normally I find it personally easier in a race. Once you practice it a little bit at home, cause you, you don't have any distractions, right? Like you don't have like work that you have to start. Uh, you just focus on every foot, every footstep. And so that was kind of the other part is you just have to, you just have to change how you're moving your body because if you keep moving your body in the same way, it's going to keep getting worse. This is your body telling you that something is wrong. Um, the third part, is is kind of related to both of those, um, and is kind of the most important of all. Um, and that is that when tendonitis is is really bad, the initial the initial way that your that that your brain makes sense of that is that there is a disconnection between what your body is doing and what you want your body to do, and so there's a profound Feeling of loss, where your body is not your own, like that—that you're you're telling it to do something and it just doesn't want to do it, and 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 that disconnection is profoundly disturbing. People take it different ways; like they either get mad at their bodies, or they get sad, or they just get depressed and they don't feel anything, or you know, it just presents in, in any number of ways. But fundamentally all of that negative emotion is coming from just that disconnection that your body is not yours that it's not doing what you want it to do and and that's disturbing because normally your body just does what you want and it's a tool and the thing that i wanted him to embody is that this is not your body failing this is your brain-body system like giving you new information. And that new information is you're walking wrong. Like this is this is your body asking you to walk better and and making it a more collaborative experience between um you know it's it's easy to separate in your mind like your brain and your body, but it's obviously just one thing. Like there's not a separation there. And and so it's it's really you finding your way back to that collaborative, like my body is giving me information. My body is giving me sensation and I'm just trying to do right by my body and things are bad right now, but they're going to get better. Like finding that connection again, um, is, is the, is the kind of final piece that is so important that people lose. And, and you can talk to people after the race and, and the phrase that comes up, in various forms, but often verbatim, it's like my body failed me, and that's there's no there's no way through that, right? Like that story is just like the car is broken, right? Like you can't keep driving a car that has like thrown a cylinder or whatever. Um, and it's just like that story. There's no way through, and so that story can't be the one. You can't tell yourself that story um, you know, sometimes it is actually literally true, right? Like you can't keep going with a broken femur or a broken, like, or a, you know, bad hip or whatever, there, there are points where that is true. Tendonitis most of the time is not like that, right? It's, it's just like, you know, the, the car equivalent of like a squeaky belt. Right. Um, and, and so tying all of those three things together is just like you have to find your find this harmony again you have to find the joy you have to find the like this is okay like this is working um ibuprofen and and whatever help a lot with that you know it's very difficult to have that nuanced conversation with your body when when your body is screaming at you Um, but you can do it without you know you can do it in quite a bit of pain you know, but, um, but yeah. So, so that was that was the basic. You know, that was the the three things that I wanted to kind of hit home. Was this while um, moving? Were you, were you guys thing. stopped. We stopped on the trail this time. Hundred percent stopped. Um, we kind of got to the part where we kind of had some ups and downs, and we descended, and then basically it was just a flat walk, a flat trail to the to the end of that stage, and so that was the time to like start. The good patterns right because it's much easier to work through tendonitis on like flat and level ground than it is like uneven terrain or going up and down stuff and so it was basically like my my plan was we kind of got to him as soon as he complained we're just like okay like get some get some painkillers down the hatch make sure you're drinking make sure you're eating and internally i was like we're just going to wait 30 40 minutes until we're at the beginning of this flat We'll coach him, coach him into like how to go. And so we just like, we took a long time to get to there. It was like an hour or something to go like a K or whatever. Uh, Maybe it was a little more than a K, but it was like really slow going. He was having just a really hard time pushing through. We got to that thing. And I basically was like, we need to, we need to flip the script. We have to, we have to fix this thing. And it was funny as I'm going through these like bullet points in my head, he's just like, Hey, yeah, I'm on board. Like, you know, like let's just go. And I'm just like, I hear you. And also like, we really need to figure this out. Like I need to kind of, maybe some of this is duplicate. I don't know. But just based on how you're responding to tendonitis, like we really need to change how this is all going because we need to quadruple our speed Like, we cannot, like, we will not finish this race if we continue at this pace. And it's not, like, negative. It's, like, he's trying as hard as he can. Like, he just has to change how he's spending his energy, right? Like, we can't have him waste all of his energy just, like, pushing through the pain. Like, we have to change the story. We have to change the way that he's using his energy. And so I was very, like, we just kind of went through this thing. I was super, encouraged. you know, I was basically just, like, we have to, change this I know you can do this you're amazing like we just have to make this change and it, it was it took about five minutes for him to go from 1k an hour to four and a half 5k an hour and so we were I was just like walking I started really slowly He was right behind me, kind of careful foot placement. And I just like slowly increased the speed, kind of watching over my shoulder to see how far away he was. And as soon as there was a gap, I would slow down a little bit. And so I would just like slowly ease into this pace. And within minutes, he was, you know, moving at the speed that we needed to. So that was Um,
1: your your team's crux moment. Like that was it at that point. Like if if things fell apart there.
0: That was definitely one of them. Um, there were a couple others, um, that was certainly the most like quick and positive one. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a big one because it was such a trekking heavy race.
1: Aside from Darren, where was it really hard? Where was there a situation in the race that, that pushed up against the wall of it?
0: Um, the, the, the kind of biggest one for our whole team was in the last night. Um, we kind of like, we're trying to push fast. We were catching teams. making really good time on the final trek um and between like sleepiness and hyponitis and like forgetting about nutrition and hydration because we're so close so close to the finish because we feel so close to the finish but it's still like five hours away um and and basically everybody collab like everybody everybody's systems failed um you know i got heinous shin splints Um, Chelsea just like, couldn't, couldn't carry the weight anymore. Lars was like struggling with, with, um, you know, keeping, keeping like all of his stuff moving forward. So we're just like, everybody was either on the edge or like in the ditch. Um, and we just like focused on the nutrition, focused on the like took a minute to reset weight in a way that was like, even across everybody's abilities at that point. And we just like started plugging away again and, and kind of got back on the horse and, and kept riding. Is that, um, that's a really was, tough place to be because in a, in oh a, a, a four person so team, uh, right.
1: Totally. You're close to the finish, but in a four person team, totally. when it's okay to have one person in the hole, two, even three, totally. when you go four for four and, yeah. and the fact you could smell the barn, right. That you were so oh close to the finish. Totally. And you were just ready totally. to be done. That you you really yeah. had to kind of catch your, you had to catch your breath. Everybody had to attend to themselves separately, and totally. rather than rather than cannibalize each other, it was totally. catch our breath and. Yeah. Regarding yeah. your 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 assistance with 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 Darren during the race, did you know how, did you learn how to do that? Because you were in his spot at one point, and someone walked you
0: through it, or did you learn it from another source? Um, it's a bunch of different experiences kind of put together. Um, Jason has coached me through a couple of hard spots, not so much tendonitis as, as like other things. Um, so it's a combination of, you know, physical therapy stuff that I've done. Um, my experience flipping the script or kind of telling myself a new story um, and then kind of a disastrous version of this like pep talk that I tried to give to Eric Sanders um, in, in the race, in the uh, Fiordlands race and, um, in New Zealand and at that time I didn't I didn't really realize how how much of the problem comes from just like self-image stuff so like when I was talking to Eric I was just talking purely physical I've just like pushed through the pain like, this is all physical. Like, you can just, we can just. Um, and the part that I was missing there was just like, you can do this. Like, you are an incredible athlete. Like, we have gotten here and you are capable of this, full stop. Like, you just have to find, you just have to find it. Um, And it super duper failed with Eric. Like, I totally flubbed the delivery, he was in so much pain. Um, and you know, my teammates were just furious with me because they just like, we're just like, why are you, why are you wasting time? Like, you know, trying to trying to talk him out of this, like, this is, you know, this is horrible. Like, we just have to get through this. And I'm just like, okay, like that didn't work at all. Um, and so, you know, the, the critical piece is just like, you have to believe in yourself, as totally trite and and um, horrible that like phrase is. You can't like say you need to believe in yourself because like that's a, such an overused phrase. You have to find other ways of saying that.
1: Yeah, it's like well, um, I believe in myself, but my tendon my tendonitis doesn't believe in me.
0: Yeah, exactly. And um, that's, that and that it, that phrase is exactly like that brain body separation. The like yeah. rebellion of the body. Uh, you you
1: posted a somewhat wow. epic Facebook yeah. quote not too long <laughs> yeah. ago, um, and while I had seen your experience in Fiji, um, and I had and I had knew you raced in Worlds, it was your I think this was a post Worlds Facebook post that you put on afterwards. Um, and so the nationals. nationals, nationals, nationals. Um, and I'm going to read to you a section of it. I want you to comment on it. Um, yeah. And I'm going to post a link to the entire thing on the show notes. So for those of you at home want to yeah. read the whole thing, feel free. Yeah. For me, the whole point of the sport is overcoming adversity. It's opting into an objectively unpleasant experience because it's awesome. And we need that as human beings. We aren't built to live comfortable lives. We are built to solve problems to keep moving forward together as a tribe or team. I look back at inappropriate nutrition, gear, and strategy choices fondly. They are a source of connection and love for me and my team. Walk me through some of the inappropriate nutrition year and strategy choices. And that's the meat of the quote.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, the obvious like strategy thing is, is Fiji and similar. Um, you know, my, my favorite nutrition story is, is comes from Patagonia, where we know how hard it like you're going into a three day trek. Right. So you're going to be on your feet for 72 hours and you have to feed yourself for 72 hours. The, the various strategies that people take is just like, just carry a bunch of weight and live large and eat and like just carry very heavy packs from the get go. The other strategy is like, don't realize it's a 72 hour trek and bring 24 hours worth of food. And then realize late in the game that you do not have enough food and then lick the insides of your goo packets um, and beg the nice volunteers to spot you some food, which they will deny, um, which we've seen a bunch of teams do. And it's really sad. So they they just like stumble through the latter half of the race, just starving. Um, and then the strategy that we thought of is like, well, what's the most dense Form of calories imaginable. It's like butter. Butter we can't just eat. So what's the closest thing? And we had a sponsor at the time, which was a macadamia nut company. And so we were, in, and so we were sponsored by macadamia nut company and Tailwind, uh, which is confectioner sugar and <laughs> salt, basically. <laughs> so we decided to bring. Confectioner sugar and salt, which is tailwind. We brought tailwind and we brought macadamia nuts, which are the fattiest, most calorie dense nut ever, and beef jerky, because we also had like a beef jerky sponsor. And so we figured that this was like the most concentrated form of calories that had all of the macronutritional needs checked, right? We had quick calories from sugar. We had fat from the nuts and we had protein from the beef jerky. It makes complete so sense had, on
1: paper. Complete sense.
0: Totally. So <laughs> we had we had like a macronutritional perfect storm. So we start this raise, we start these legs and at first it's great. Confectioner sugar is delicious. Um, beef jerky is great and the macadamia nuts are amazing. Um, what rapidly happened is the confectioner sugar Tore through our mouths. We just like had open sores in our mouths from the like razor blades, lemon lime, right, lemon lime <laughs> confectioner sugar that we've been sucking down. Um, we're basically like macadamia nut butter factories because like we have no fiber in our diets, so the macadamia nuts are just going like, basically straight through us, um and our only source of protein, like most of the, most of the, um, beef jerky that we brought had some level of spiciness to it. So we're just like trying to choke down like spicy beef jerky on our like completely (laughs) torn up mouths. And so it's just like the worst, (laughs) right? Like It's just the worst. And so there was just kind of moments for us and I love spicy food. And so I was just in heaven because, the, the like spicy food on a torn open mouth is even more of a endorphin rush than spicy food on a non-torn open mouth. So I'm just like gleefully eating through all of all of my spicy beef jerky. Um, and and it, towards the end, it's like nobody's eating their beef jerky but me. Um, and so there's these moments where they're like, "Can I trade you for that?" I'm like, "No, I'll eat mine." <laughs> and right. then you eat yours, and if you don't eat yours, I'll I'll eat yours when you can't eat it. Um, Guess what, teammate? But, it's time to build character. I'm eating beef eat jerky. Yours yeah, too. Yeah, eating the <laughs> jerky. No, no. We 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 did our best to keep each other, you know, like fed at at, at whatever level we could. But man, was that a disaster! Like totally, just just awful. You know, like hungry and plenty of food and like horrible mouth. And, and, and I, horrible I I think gut. That, but that's a nice um, part about adventure racing, right? Is that we, exactly, we do this. first right. of all we do
1: this voluntarily. Let's 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 totally. for those at totally. home we are not we're not court ordered to do this to ourselves. And the fact totally. that we could completely, completely buffalo it, train wreck it, put it to the ground, totally. and then and then talk about it. Because after the race is over and and, and I really identified with your your the post race blues, the idea that you're all together mm-hmm. as a team. And then you kind of go your separate ways and it's mm-hmm. jobs and paychecks and all of that. Totally. The, the fact that we get together and we tell these stories to each other back and forth, and it's the stories that fuel the sport and it's the stories totally. of, and I would argue, and I'm curious as to your ratio, but like good story to bad story. I bet it's like two victorious stories to like eight train wreck stories.
0: Hundred Yeah. The great stories are boring. Like we walked and walked and walked and we felt great. And then we had every flag the water was bikes. fine. Right. And then we, we biked and we biked and we biked and then we right. paddled and we paddled and we paddled and we won. Right. right. It was like, yeah, it was, yeah. that's terrible. That's, like, it's the world's worst podcast. Thank, yeah, thanks totally. for coming. Like it was totally boring. You know, like you want to hear the failures or the, oh, we stopped for coffee at a cafe because like there was one and we wanted to take a minute or like, it, it's just like, you know, we got we got so many thorns. I was pulling two inch long thorns out of my knees like months after the race or all of that. And, and, you know, you tell these stories with a smile on your face because, because this is, this is really like, you know, there, there aren't really good campfire stories from regular life much, you know, like there's, there's something deeply uh, compelling about, real stories out, like battling real hardship, you know, and, and we've gotten to the point as a society that our, that our heroes and our myth-making and all of that stuff is just like superheroes, you know, just like taken to the next level, taken to this like hyper extreme, um, because there just aren't that many like real compelling, well-told you know, stories of hardship, battling the natural, you know, and so you, so we wind up telling these supernatural stories, which right. entertain yeah. for sure.
1: But it, it, and you're spot on, right? And the idea that because we've run out of that sense of narrative, because narrative is what drives culture. Mm-hmm. Narrative is what drives conversation. Totally. It's who we are totally. because we've, we've taken away the narrative of, of that kind of <clears throat> adversity and, and fighting totally. through things. Cause I would argue and, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this is that we've, it's very, very nice to have a, a big flat screen TV and a comfortable couch. And it's nice to be, you know, it's nice to, yeah. to, to live a life of relative ease. And for many people, you don't really grow that way.
0: Right. And, and I think, I think you don't enjoy it. You know, like every, every time I fall asleep in a bed, I, I, I appreciate it on a level that is difficult to describe because I know, I know exactly how bad a terrible sleep can be. Like there was once like our first, our first sleep on the first Patagonia that I ever did with, with uh, Jason and Chelsea and, and Steven, we passed out like by an overpass thing and they had brought, we had tents that in principle could fit all of us, but we hadn't brought them on that, biking legs. So the rest of the team was in a tent and I was just like out cause I'm, I sleep the warm, or I slept the warmest. And when I woke up, I realized that I had fallen asleep like either next to, or on top of like a pile of human feces. Cause I was just so tired that I just laid down in the dirt on the rocks and kind of just like passed out. And then I woke up and it was just like poop. And I'm just like, oh my God, what? Like, <laughs> this is, this is the worst sleep imaginable. It's just like on the rocks, like in poop. And it's just like, every time I go to bed in a bed, just like, oh my God, this is so soft and so clean. It smells great. And I have eight hours that I can do this, you know, or whatever.
1: And what's great is you tell that story and I'm nodding my head for those at home i'm nodding my head I'm, I'm thinking of my own story when i was in scotland and rather than sleep in the bothy bag i slept in the mud because i was not going to get totally. claustrophobic in the bothy bag but you go to a, a dinner party you go to a cocktail party and you yeah. tell that story in passing and people are dropping the silverware the record skips totally, totally. right and it's just they mm-hmm. sometimes people just don't totally. get it and you want to say to them yeah. come with me and you'll yeah, get it totally. like come spend yeah. some time here and, and i think that yeah for many people, it's, it's that part of adventure racing that when they get a taste of it, that they can't walk away from it, that they really yeah, right. enjoy that experience and say that they tried themselves. They tested themselves. They learned things about yeah. themselves along the way. Yeah. And I think you're spot on that there aren't really many opportunities in today's world for that experience to happen.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think one thing that, that is, that is worth saying is that, um, adventure racing has something to offer everyone. Um, the people the people to whom it kind of seems attractive to or like has natural fit are very like privileged in in a lot of ways you know like you know there there are people who sleep rough every night of their lives you know there's mm-hmm. people who don't have homes people who don't have comfortable homes people that you know don't don't eat three square meals who are kind of battling the elements day to day. And I think that one of the things for me that bears some thought is just like, this is, this is something that we're choosing to do. And it's something that, you know, the the people, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different kinds of people, but there's the people who are, you know, comfortable in their lives, and like, really, really don't want discomfort and kind of just like, harden themselves, to the, to the, um, comfort. And then there's people who are seeking, seeking out discomfort and growth and all that stuff. And then there's people who are just like totally trapped in these, in these heinous treadmills without a way to get off, you know, cause for us, the race ends, you go home and, and, um, you know, it's a really lucky position to be in, that I, you know, I'm so grateful for, um, that, that it is something that we can opt into. And, and for many, many centuries, nobody got to opt out or many, many millennia, nobody got to opt out of, you know, there was just no physical comfort in the same way that we have now. And that there's a lot of people that, you know, (laughs) the sport isn't for because, you know, we need to get them a bed first.
1: Right. Right. And that's, and I I appreciate you putting a spotlight on the idea of privilege. The fact that we're, we have the, we have the fortunate, the good honor the good opportunity to get to do this and get to take part in this sport. And we can't forget that. And then along yeah. the way, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to lead the witness here, but along the way, we have an obligation to bring others along also by making the sport accessible to as many people as possible.
0: Yeah. Right. Cause there's so much to learn. It's, it's, you know, people, the, the opportunities for growth are so much clearer when there's just an obvious objective. Um, you know, it's really easy in, normal life to kind of distract away and say, Oh, well, what I was trying to do was X and I did X. Whereas in a race, you know, there's only one goal right, finish the course as fast as you can. Right. And so you can't say like, Oh, well, like we were really trying to do something else. Like, "Mm, okay, cool. (laughs) But but isn't there? but
1: there's a certain life benefit to that. Like for, for those of us who who have, who have, we work in organizations, I would argue that adventure racers tend to drill things down to their simplest equation. Like we have to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. This is how we're gonna get there. And and we yeah. we probably get caught up on the more complex tasks. We we mm-hmm. probably are guilty of trying to make complex tasks as, as simple as possible.
0: <laughs> I guess I'll have to I'll have to talk to my boss about that. Whether, whether, get, whether, yeah. whether that behavior is is appreciated or not. Um, yeah, the, the, the next all staff meeting. I haven't, you know, I haven't worked. I haven't worked with other adventure racers. I'm always the weirdo. Um, so, but I mean, you know, the ability fundamentally, the, the lessons from adventure racing for me are the ability to take feedback and the habit of taking a step back, you know, because any, any time, any time there's something that's not going the way that it should. Um, there's kind of the, the, intuitive fix or there's the kind of like obvious thing you need to do um and the temptation is just to do that um and i think maybe that's the right first thing to do but but if you keep doing the same fixes to the same problems and you don't step back and like figure out what's going on you're just going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again and you you see that and so so taking a step back and being open to feedback i think are universally um useful things
1: Thank you to Dan of Ben Racing for joining us today in the Dark Zone. As you could tell from the episode, Dan is a thoughtful and conscientious racer, almost the philosopher king of adventure racing, and we appreciated his time with us today. Thank you to Tansy Navigation for their sponsorship. Email me, brian, at ardarkzone.com, to enter a lottery to win a copy of Squiggly Lines, Mark LaTansy's premier book on navigation skills. We appreciate having you today in the Dark Zone. As always, reach out with ideas for episode topics, guests, and anything related to adventure racing. We're glad that you're here. Now go outside and have some fun.